as the rebels finally came over the walls, realizing their situation was hopeless, the defenders decided to blow up the magazine. It's the morning of the 11th of May, 1857, and the Indian mutiny has begun. It's spreading from Meerut, which we covered in the last episode, to Delhi. The city was the capital of the old Mughal Empire, and by Hindus and Muslims alike was considered the heart of India. It was here that King Bahadur Shah had his throne, though over recent years his power had become minimal as that of the British had increased. The mutineers looked to him to lead them. Hi guys and welcome back to the Redcoat History podcast and YouTube channel. This is the second part of my season looking at the Indian Mutiny of 1857, that brutal war known in India now as the First War of Independence. This series is going to include recent footage from some of the locations discussed. I was lucky enough to travel to India on business and I went to Delhi and look now, so I've got plenty of pictures of those places. Today we're looking at the uprising in Delhi itself, including how the oldest Victoria Cross winner ever got his award. Like many parts of India in that hot May of 1857, Delhi had been on edge for some time. But it was the arrival of a band of mutineers from Meerut early on the morning of the 11th of May that made things finally come to a head. Among the British officers of the East India Company's army in Delhi that day was a young 19-year-old subaltern called Edward Vibart. He was known to his friends as Butcher. He had just come to the small fortified main guard next to the Kashmir Gate when things took a turn for the worst. This is what he later wrote. On looking out into the open space in front of the church, a few cavalry troopers in their French grey uniforms were seen galloping back in the direction of the palace. Lieutenant Wilson brought a gun round to bear on them, but they were out of sight before he had time to fire. As for the men of my own regiment, I could not imagine what had become of them. Not a sepoy was to be seen, they'd all vanished. A consultation was now held to decide what was best to be done. At length, it was determined to hold the main guard, and for this purpose the two guns were placed in position at the gate, which commanded the approach from the palace, and swept the open ground in front. Some of our sepoys were drawn up in support, whilst others were sent to man the ramparts and bastion and keep a sharp lookout on every side. I may here mention that the guard of the 38th Native Infantry on duty had, just before our arrival, refused to fire on the cavalry mutineers when called upon to do so by Captain Wallet and Lieutenant Proctor. They even taunted these officers in mutinous language and said that now the time had arrived to take their revenge on people who had tried, as they asserted, to subvert their caste and religion. Our position here then can easily be imagined to have been of an exceedingly precarious nature. At length, some of us advanced beyond the inner gates, when the first thing I saw was the lifeless body of Captain Burroughs lying close by the gate of the churchyard. Assisted by a couple of sepoys, I carried him into the main guard and laid him on a charpoy, which is like a little bed. Other bodies were now observed scattered about the place. Five were at length found and brought in. I shall never forget my feelings that day as I saw our poor fellows being brought in, their faces distorted with all the agonies of a violent death, hacked about in every conceivable way. But we had no time to indulge in sad reflections, for reports now reached us that besides the 3rd Cavalry Troopers, two regiments of native infantry, the 11th and 20th, had also arrived from Meerut and were on their way to attack us. The entire city was now in uproar. One after another, the local regiments were called out to crush the mutiny, and one after another, they refused. Christians of all colours, whether local or European, were cut down in the streets. 
As an interesting aside, one thing I did learn in my research is that white Muslim converts were spared and some of them went on to fight alongside the mutineers. As the chaos developed, there was one very important building that the mutineers were determined to capture. So behind me, that archway is all that's left of the old Delhi magazine, the largest in northern India as it was at the start of the Indian mutiny in 1857, packed with muskets, powder and cannonballs. It was the scene of a bitter fight at the start of the mutiny. It was also where the oldest ever recipient of the Victoria Cross earned his award. It's an unloved, unlooked after spot, this. I'm literally kneeling in what's clearly where druggies have been doing their stuff. It's not pleasant. I wouldn't recommend visiting for the faint of heart, but for those of us who love military history, it's worth the effort. Lieutenant George Willoughby of the Bengal Artillery was in command here. Willoughby has been described as shy and undistinguished, but what happened at the magazine is the stuff of legends. At the first sign of trouble, he ordered his tiny garrison of eight other Europeans and a handful of sepoys to barricade the gates. To make his job more difficult, the sepoys who were there were already showing signs of mutinous behaviour. It wasn't looking good. Amongst the men present was Lieutenant William Rayner. He was 61 years old and had been in India with the East India Company's army since 1812. Another of the men was Lieutenant George Forrest. He later wrote, Inside the gate leading to the park were placed two six-pounders, double-charged with grape, one under Subconductor Crow and Sergeant Stewart, with the lighted matches in their hands and with orders that if any attempt was made to force that gate, both guns were to be fired at once and they were to fall back on the part of the magazine in which Lieutenant Willoughby and I were posted. The principal gate of the magazine was similarly defended by two guns, with chevaux de frise laid down on the inside. Chevaux de frise were like defensive obstacles with swords or spikes, that sort of thing. Almost a bit like modern-day barbed wire. At that moment, the mutineers arrived in force, demanding that the magazine surrender. Their offer was ignored, and the local troops in the magazine now abandoned their posts and joined the enemy as the attack commenced. Forrest continues his account. We kept up an incessant fire of grape on them, every round of which told well, as long as a single round remained. Previous to the natives deserting as they hid the priming pouches, and one man in particular, Kareem Buksh, appeared to keep up a constant communication with the enemy on the outside and keep them informed of our situation. Lieutenant Willoughby was so annoyed at this man's conduct that he gave me an order to shoot him should he again approach the gate. Lieutenant Rayner with the other Europeans did everything that possibly could be done for the defence of the magazine. And where all have behaved so bravely it is almost impossible for me to point out any particular individual. A train of powder was then laid, with a view to blowing the place sky-high if it looked like it was about to fall. Fighting raged until the weight of sepoy fire began to take its toll on the defenders. As the rebels finally came over the walls, realising their situation was hopeless, the defenders decided to blow up the magazine. A crash of thunder followed. Hundreds of shells and powder barrels shook the entire city as they exploded. Historian Saul David says probably 25 sepoys and up to 400 local civilian onlookers were killed by the explosion. Three of the defenders were also blown up, including Conductor Scully, who lit the match. I mean, what a ballsy bugger. He must have known that he was going to die in that explosion, but he was willing to do it because of his duty. It's hard to believe that such a small force defending this place was able to mount such a spirited and brave defence. 
What I find very surprising is that any of the defenders actually survived, and some of them even managed to get back to safety. Okay, let's go back to Edward Vibot's account again. He was still busy at the main gate, but he heard what happens and he later wrote, about 4 p.m. guns were heard booming in the direction of the magazine, but no one could conjecture what had happened. We were not long, however, kept in suspense, for after some 30 rounds had been fired in rapid succession, a terrific explosion rent the air, shaking the foundations of the main guard to its centre. Bugles were blown, the assembly sounded, and all was confusion and dismay. Everybody rushing here and there, some pacifying the ladies, others trying to get the men together, none of us knowing what to make of it. Presently, a dense column of smoke and dust ascended to an immense height, and we rightly guessed that the magazine was blown up. A few minutes subsequent to the explosion, Lieutenant Willoughby, the Commissary of Ordnance in charge of the magazine, and Lieutenant Forrest, his assistant, made their appearance. The former begrimed with dust and powder, and the latter badly wounded in the hand from a musket ball. From them, we learned the particulars of their defence of the magazine, a defence which perhaps it is no exaggeration to say has scarcely a parallel in history. It's a hell of a statement, isn't it? It really puts it into context. Three of the survivors were awarded the Victoria Cross for their actions. Amongst them, of course, Lieutenant Forrest and Lieutenant Rayner, that's 61 year old, 61 years and 10 months. That makes him the oldest ever recipient of the Victoria Cross, a record that I think is highly unlikely ever to be beaten. Rayner was later promoted captain, and he actually survived the mutiny, dying in Ferrospore in 1860. His grave still exists, but according to my research online, it's in very poor condition. A number of the other defenders, including, of course, Conductor Scully, would have won the Victoria Cross, but in those days it couldn't be awarded posthumously. Only the survivors were able to get the award. Next to the old Delhi magazine is this memorial. It's the Telegraph Monument, and it commemorates the last telegraph sent from Delhi that warned the rest of the country about what was coming, that the rebellion was here. It was very important. It's quite hard to read the inscription on there. Something about Charles Todd. Todd was actually the master of the telegraph office, and he was killed on the 11th of May when he set out to fix what he thought was a break in the line. Later in the day, one of his staff, J.W. Pilkington, who had already managed to take shelter at the Flagstaff Tower on Delhi Ridge, volunteered to go and send one last telegraph from the office. The message he sent said, Cantonment in a state of siege. Mutineers from Meerut, third light cavalry, numbers not known, said to be 150 men, cut off communication. 54th native infantry sent against them refused to act. Several officers killed and wounded. City in a state of considerable excitement. Troops sent down but nothing known yet. Information will be forwarded. It was later said that this message saved British India. It informed other cities what was happening and in some cases allowed them time to disarm potentially mutinous sepoy regiments. Meanwhile, the ordeal for those Europeans still in Delhi was far from over. Some did manage to survive, travelling for days and through the night to escape. Even those lucky enough not to be killed were usually robbed of all their belongings by locals on the road. So rebel soldiers were now in charge in Delhi and they were able to persuade the King Bahadur Shah to side with them, to be their leader. But he was a nominal head and didn't really have any power. He was a man very much caught between a rock and a hard place. And if you want to know more about him, I do recommend the works of William Dalrymple. So what had started as a small scale mutiny in Meerut was now spreading. Delhi was controlled by the mutineers. Things were not looking good for the British. 
Could this be the end of the East India Company's control of India? So thanks once again for listening, guys. In the next episode of this series, we're going to be going to Cornpore, scene of a brave defence by General Wheeler and a handful of British soldiers who were heavily outnumbered, and then a terrible massacre. In the meantime, there'll be other interviews popping up on the feed, so do be sure to subscribe. Not all of them mutiny-related. I might have to bounce around a little bit, but this series will continue. I'm aiming for one a month on the Indian mutiny of 1857. And you can also sign up for my mailing list over at redcoathistory.com. When you do that, you'll get a free ebook all about the Anglo-Zulu War. It's the one I wrote myself, and I hope you'll find it's a good read. All right, guys, take care. Bye-bye.